All right, guys, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. We, we will finish the Beatitudes today. So, next week we will start the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 5. Um, I, I'm just going to go ahead and start here. Blessed are the pure in heart. I'm not sure exactly if that... I think that's kind of where we ended up. Close enough. All right, just to review, when we are studying the Beatitudes, uh, oftentimes our first reaction is always to insert ourselves in the Beatitudes, meaning these are about me. However, when we study Scripture, our first response always wants to be, where is Jesus in this? So our first thought is always about Jesus. Okay? Once we find Jesus, we're able to find ourselves. So let's kind of think about this in terms of relationship, right? The most important person in your existence is Jesus Christ. You find Jesus, then you find yourself, and how you find yourself is always in relationship to him. So that okay, so that's that's we just need to make sure we keep that cuz I can tell you it is so easy to slip into this uh, this, the opposite, find, trying to find ourselves first and then find Jesus, and that usually doesn't go well. Okay. Blessed are the pure in heart. For, so that is uh, uh, verse 8. Okay. What does the pure in heart mean? Well, first of all, pure... Uh, purity or being clean is a reference to the, to the status of one who stands before God in the temple. So, I don't know what we remember is that the Beatitudes has this tapestry and this kind of foundation that rests in the Old Testament, not only in terms of categories here, purity, but also in terms of characters, as we kind of mentioned before, Moses and Abraham. Uh, so, when we say pure in heart, we aren't thinking in terms of our you know, uh, our own kind of modern category. Purity is an Old Testament term because the same word can be used for clean. Or uh, So when you go into the temple in the Old Testament, you have the unclean and the clean. Usually in the Gospels, it's in reference to leprosy, right? You have um, This is in the Gospel of Luke, though, but where you have the guys saying, unclean, unclean, and so people need to stay away from them. Because as people come into contact with uncleanliness, they become unclean, and then they can't participate in the life of the worshiping community, which is not good. However, so now being part of uh, the pure in heart, though, is as you come into the temple, you are certain you're making certain claims about yourself. Like so, I'm unclean. And I'm, I have to go through these uh, rites of cleanliness, which is all in the Old Testament, Leviticus. Now, we don't, we don't think about those categories now because Jesus has uh, fulfilled all those um, statements and has made us clean through his, his word, his saving gospel. However, those first listeners in the gospel of Matthew, this is all part of their normal life. 
So as you're pure in heart, what you see is what you get. So it's not so much, hey, look at me, I'm a pretty pure person, but, hey, look at me, this is who I am. Warts and all, I think is sometimes we say. So, um, those who were at the women's retreat, I, was, I tried to get this done last week before we had the women's retreat. So, this is like vulnerability in spades here. So, so when you, the, blessed are those who are pure in heart. That's basically saying, this is me. I make no pretension of trying to be somebody I'm not. Now, we have to say pure in heart, because we don't, I mean, our heart is an organ, and we don't, we kind of have an understanding of how we use the heart today. I think, yeah, I wrote it down. It's, it, most of the time, we think about it in terms of feelings, like the head is the, the objective side of things, and the one that, you know, we need to use when we make decisions, you know, concerning buying a house. We don't want to do it with our heart, right, because that that's, usually gets us in trouble. However, in, uh, in this instance, though, it's actually more than that. It's the entire interior life of the person. So it's actually your feelings and your mind and your will are all part of the heart. So that's, that's real important for us to, to it's, so it's not pure in feelings or emotions. It's, it's everything on the inside. But when you're pure in heart, though, what's on the inside is what? On the outside. So what you see is what you get. So this whole kind of perception that, hey, I'm going to look great on the outside, but on the inside, I'm a wreck. Um, this is the opposite. Pure in heart means what you, see on the, or what you have on the inside is also on the outside. Um, blessed are the pure in, uh, in heart, for they shall see God. So the... The pure in heart come before God, completely vulnerable, or exposed, however you want to see. So God sees them entirely. So he sees on the outside and the inside, so it kind of cuts through the crap in a sense. And when God sees purely, they also see God purely or holy. Now in the Old Testament, no one sees God except for one. Moses. Did I write down the quote there? No, I didn't. But only Moses sees God, and even in that kind of scene is kind of a peculiar vision. Uh, well, let's, let's just take a quick look at it. So uh, Exodus chapter 20. If we don't have a Bible, there's Bibles over there. Look on with your partner. Listen up. I don't, whatever you want to do. Exodus 20. This is the first instance of kind of coming into God's presence or seeing God. And then what the next uh, Bible verse or section will say, yeah, that becomes a little bit more abundantly clear. Exodus uh, yeah, Exodus chapter 20, um, verse 21. So Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. God speaks. The people freak out and say, Whoa, I don't want to hear God speak. Moses, you talk to God, please. And then this is the response. Exodus 20, verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. 
I don't know if you ever knew that, but God's in the dark. Actually, uh, this is, I mean, this verse right here has been ample uh, stuff, fodder for people to talk about what faith means. And uh, there's uh, some ancient fathers, uh, church fathers, that talk about faith being a darkness, which is kind of the opposite, right, of what we normally think of things, light, right? But John, the Gospel of John uses light and dark differently than how darkness is used here. So think about it this way. If you live in the darkness, what sense can you not use? Your eyes. But what sense, well, you can use multiple senses, but concerning the Word of God, what sense is most important? Here. Which is related to faith. You're jumping ahead. Yes, you are right. Okay, then go to Exodus chapter 24. Um, uh, verse 11. I'm just going to jump right to it. So, um, ex- so everything's great now. Exodus 20, this is the penultimate, like, hey, holy smokes, God and his people together. God gives these laws. Then 24, the covenant is the promise between God and his people is confirmed precisely in a meal. So they eat. It's Moses, Aaron, 70 elders. They go up on the mountain and they eat. Of course, you should be hearing echoing here. And so this is the verse. And and God did not lay his hand on the chief of men of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So the word beheld is the scene, behold. Um, but then all hell breaks loose after that. So, <laughs> But when these men come into the presence of God like this... Um, they have been made clean, they've been made pure, everything is, is, is good. And so they come into this circumstance. So that is behind Matthew chapter 5. Well, good question. Let's keep rolling because that's a good segue. So now, it, it's a little bit of an unusual word because when we say, Behold! Behold, we always think in terms of, just strictly speaking, physical sight. However, behold is usually more than just physical sight. It's, it's a, uh, well, what I wrote up here is um, knowing. But that even, even is a little peculiar, because when we know things, that means we can control things. Oftentimes, um, the word for knowing or knowledge is a peculiar word. But biblically speaking, now the reason why I say that, okay, so um, you might be saying, what are you talking about, Pastor? Uh, When we want to know something that's usually pitted against believing something, in fact, uh, my wife and I went to a play yesterday called Under the Lentil. Lentil! Lentil, not lentil. Lentil. Yeah. 
Uh, it, it's, it's a very kind of peculiar uh, play, but it was, I thought it was kind of interesting. Long story short, it's a, li- a Dutch librarian who finds a, a book that's 113 years old or overdue. She's like, what in the world's going on? What kind of guy is this? And so she goes on this journey, and she, she's uh, actually traveling after the wandering Jew, which is a myth that the man stood under a lentil, the lentil, um, as Jesus is walking to the crucifixion, he falls down in front of his shop, and the guy says, uh, uh, he doesn't know what's going on, he doesn't look like a murderer, but he says, all right, pick up your cross, get out of here. And Jesus turns to him and says, I'm going to go on my way, but you will wander for the rest until I come back. So she goes after this man, trying to find this wandering Jew. All right, it's a journey of faith, but what does she want? She wants to know. So there's this level of certainty, and when she has that knowledge and certainty, what can she stop doing? Searching for him or following him. So let's put it that way, following him, and then all the buzz and whistles should go off in your head because as she's she's trying to find the wandering Jew, who also was once a wandering Jew who had people following him. Jesus, right? Okay, good. So, if, so this idea is that um, this is a journey of faith, and so the idea of beholding someone is seeing, which usually means that means I know. That's why I brought up the Moses reference. When he comes into the darkness, he's beholding God, but he's not necessarily seeing God. Now, now, um, I don't want to come out of the Gospel of Matthew, um, but I will for a second because the Gospel of John and the Thomas story, right? Blessed are those who believe and don't see. And So, all right, so uh, seeing and knowing. It's not simple physical sight, although it, it does include that. That's the thing. So um, you do see Jesus. You do see God. So see God since you stand before him precisely as God sees you. So you come into the temple, you stand before God in purity, Christ, God sees you in purity. Now, um, obviously Jesus is the only one who actually does this. I mean, in Matthew chapter 11, uh, I don't know actually if it's verse 27. I wrote it down, so I'm hoping that's right. But I know it's in Matthew chapter 11. Well, I get, yeah, I get it right. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The word reveal, right, is a, is a sight, it, oftentimes it's a sight word. There you go. I don't know if I'm belaboring this point, but uh, hopefully it makes sense. So this revelation, okay, I, I quoted this from David Scare, which isn't really that helpful, but um, it's, it is helpful. Um, it, it's not this glorious appearing, it's, it's seen in the humility of Jesus. So you behold God precisely, not in his glory, which a lot of people think, you know, we want God out of heaven, but Jesus always works down on the ground level. Yeah, Krista. Jesus, Jesus, like, 
Yeah, no one can see God and live. But Moses did see God, however, what side? So let's see, how, he did see God, but what, what side of God did he see? The back side. So yeah, we're actually dealing with the face. Because you know who somebody is precisely by their face. However, well, this brings on a whole different level of interesting things. The face of Jesus is very important in the Gospels. And oftentimes your Bibles will not translate it correctly. They'll just say, you know, from the presence of Jesus or from Jesus, and they'll just abstract it. Oftentimes it's in the Greek, it's, it's the prosopon, it's this from the face. So it's making reference. This is where Jesus comes in. Yes, Jesus only sees the Heavenly Father unveiled or in his purity. But this is where God comes to us in his humility, precisely in the person of Jesus as a man like us, human. And so we can see Jesus and we see God as he is. So how is God as he is? He's a uh, wandering Jew. He's a, he's a, he's a, there's a Jewish man who's the God of the universe, and his name's Jesus. I mean, he's more than Jewish now, though, because there's no Jew, Gentile. But, um, but that, that's God. That is, God is precisely, because the manifestation of God's love is Jesus. Yeah, the Bible's always directing us back to Jesus. It's, it's really radical, and it's very hard for us to kind of understand that, because we always are thinking about God in this kind of the, the bigness and this kind of overwhelming deep voice and usually a dude. So, All right, so how does this beatitude apply to Jesus? Obviously, Chris has already connected that. Yes, Jesus is the one who has this unique relationship with the Heavenly Father, which then comes to our next one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God, or, or sons and daughters, children of God, brethren. Um, of course, when we say peacemakers and we think about Jesus, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We have all those Christmas Bible readings. And he's the one who proclaims peace to the Gentiles. Oh, yeah, and then um, Colossians 1.20, that's a verb. Making peace, peacemaking to be with one another. The word is, when you make peace with somebody, you're able to sit down with them and to be with each other. That's very important because um, we normally think in peace in terms of the absence of violence. Um, Audrey and Isaac. <laughs> Her mother, their their mother and I, sometimes we just want them to be quiet. (laughs) And we think we have peace all the time, raging inside each other's, and each of their hearts and minds is what? How can I get back at my sibling? (laughs) It looks like peace. It's not peace. Because if I were able to have them sit next to each other, the moment I turn my eye, most likely Isaac or Audrey's taunting, and then Isaac can't control himself, and he whacks her. And then she says, Mom and Dad. 
And then Isaac gets a great joy. He's laughing all the time when he does it. <laughs> Anyways, that's beside the point. Anyway, so, so this idea is that when you make peace, you're able actually to sit with one another and, and be with one another in a way that is um, completely at ease. I mean, it, it's something... So this is important. So there's complete reconciliation between the two, which I wrote down. Making peace means reconciliation. Jesus is the maker of peace and the Son of God. So, oh, so uh, you will be called the sons of God. There's a future tense in this phrase. Isn't Jesus already the Son of God? Yes. However, as we read in the Gospel of Matthew, going back to kind of the, the, the literature aspect of the actual Bible, uh, Jesus is fully revealed as the Son of God when he's hanging on the cross, and the centurion says, truly this man was the Son of God. So there is a, a, a revealing or unveiling of who he is. So yeah, he is the Son of God from the beginning of time. However, for us, slowly is he revealed as the Son of God. I think I'm, we might have mentioned this last week. So as you get to the end of the gospel, what is, what's your, you're supposed to go back to the beginning then, right? And then start over again and read it again. And again, so I mean, there's, this, oh, there's always this constant revelation. Oh, so, so Matthew 27, 54 is where the verse says, the centurion saw how he died and said, truly this man was the son of God. So the son of God is not revealed in his awesomeness and the miracles, his strength. The Son of God is revealed in his weakness, precisely when he's dead. It's kind of weird. Because God is life. God can heal sicknesses. But God said, nah, when I'm dead, then you'll know I'm the Son of God. You know, Jesus, when I'm dead, then you'll know I'm the Son of God, which is the exact opposite of what we think of who God is. It's tricky. Guy's tricky. So as sons of God, the Christian is God's instrument of reconciliation with the world. Oh yeah, this is great. So the Christian is not only committed to preach the message of God's reconciliation, but must in fact be reconciled to all. So we can't just say, hey, you know, uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, like at Christmas time. We can't just talk about it. We actually have to first be reconciled. And of course, that's Jesus' story. Because the church isn't instituted until after the resurrection, when Jesus has died and rose again. He's already reconciled. So from Jesus' perspective, we're good. You can sit by me anytime. So going back to uh, Audrey and Isaac, one of them has to be there. I don't know which one it would be in the analogy breaks down at this point, um, is that Jesus, since he has already been reconciled, he can say, come on, why don't you come and sit by me? And when he says, come and sit by me, there's no, there's no ulterior motive. Just let's sit down together. Let's hang out. Why? What do you want from me? Jesus is like, nothing, man. We're good. No, we're not. Yes, we are. No, we're not. I hate God. Or, you know, you're just, you're a hypocrite or whatever. Jesus is like, come on and sit down. 
All right, strangely enough, there's a Dutch movie, I'm sorry, a Danish movie called Adam's Apples. It's a very peculiar movie. I would recommend it. And if anybody knows uh, um, uh, Peterson, Charlotte Peterson. Yeah, sure, yes. She's Danish. You can ask her about it. She'll be like, don't watch it, it's terrible. But it's a story about a pastor. He's very peculiar. He's very odd. But he's actually, he lives this out, like how he's, like, um, there's a point. Now, Adam is this uh, ex-con, and he's part of this rehabilitation of ex-cons in, in Denmark. And he is so at peace with everybody, even to the point where he gets beat to a pulp by Adam, this pastor. And yet, he's like, all right, let's sit down. But he just got punched in the face. He's like, all right, let's sit down. Like, he just keeps rolling with this. And it's really odd. I mean, it's, it's really, it's kind of uncomfortable watching this. Because a little bit of part of you wants him just to, like, tell him, hey, stop that. Or, yeah. But he's so at peace with everybody that, that the, the worse he gets, he goes, well, that's a peculiar thing to do or a peculiar thing to say. Anyways, I thought of Adam's apples when I saw that. So Jesus, how does this apply to Jesus? Basically, um, Jesus is reconciled, so he, he has no enemies. Which rolls into the next one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh yeah, so this is uh, the eighth beatitude. It's pivotal. It reaches backwards and forwards. Um, so... Um, you want to turn back? Well, you don't have to turn back, probably. It's on the same page. Um, so the kingdom of heaven is also for the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we have the blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we have an echo here. So it reaches backwards to the, the poor in spirit, um, but it also reaches forward or to the present point. So this is where we get at. So persecution versus victimization. If you are reconciled with everybody, can you play the victim? Yeah, I don't think so. You, so you, you can be a victim, though. So this is where I, I, um, I, I, I took it out because I wrote a note in there saying, hey, make sure you explain what the word victim means here. Um, so oftentimes, so playing the victim is what? There's a false sense of persecution going on. Jesus is the victor and the victim precisely because he's innocent. Oftentimes, Christians will cry foul for something that is actually not real. Because if you are actually reconciled to the world in Jesus Christ, then you have, you have no enemies... So you actually aren't, you're, 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 you're persecuted, but you're not necessarily, you can't play the victim. And that's really important, because the early church manifests this a lot in the uh, martyrdom period. When Christians were, you know, fed to the lions and 
crucified upside down. They, their only response was, this isn't, this, well, I'm simplifying everything, is this, this isn't what God wants. But not, hey, you, leave me alone, or this is against the law. There, there was never a, a, a mention of this victimization. But they saw their persecution precisely through what lens? Jesus' lens. Yeah. So how did Jesus handle his uh, persecution? Did he play the victim? And the word play is important here, playing the victim. You're, you're like acting, playing. Donna. That's right. Persecute for righteousness' sake, which we do have to talk, remind ourselves what that means. We'll, we'll actually do that, I think, on the, yeah, righteousness and justice. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's something where, as Christians, because we're reconciled to the world, we actually, and, and, and by that too, though, we are children of God. So that carries a lot of weight with it as we walk through the world. Again, we're children of God, not precisely in this glorified state. Hey, I'm the prince around here. You better shape up. But in the humility. But in the humility, you come to the world with great confidence, strength, and also purpose. So that you are persecuted, but your persecution is not uh, purposeless. So you actually carry a great dignity as you are persecuted. Remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is ultimately known as the Son of God, as who he is when he's hanging on the cross dead. It just rubs up against everything we are, right? I mean, and if you're really cynical, it sounds very masochistic. I mean, it sounds terrible. Like, I want to be beaten up. And that's where you would be wrong. How that gets played out in the early church is, um, there were actually was great debate about this, and there, uh, there was some bishops in northern Africa who really debated whether they should flee the persecutions. Is that what would Jesus, because Jesus didn't do that. Is that what we should do? And, uh, and the reason why this was a debate, though, is not only that, but also the flip side of things, that people were actively, what, seeking it. And, of course, that's not what Jesus did. Which is, there's a, actually, if you think, you can play this out a little bit related to, like, uh, terrorist bombings. They who seek out violence, who seek out playing the victim. I mean, there's no kamikazes in Christians, in Christianity. There's nobody who plays that. That's a great tangent. I'll let you think about what that means later on. But... That's right. That's right. No, but uh, they first they for, yeah right. So yeah, slow down. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But the first the first question they have to get over is, am I I got to kill myself? And so the early Christians that was their basic question: Am I killing myself by? Because some people were acting. Hey, I want to be just like Jesus. 
I'm going to enter into these situations where I will be killed. I'll be like Jesus. And Christians were debating, but like, well, that doesn't sound right. So persecution always came upon them. It was a passive. That, that's why I didn't write that down. But So persecuted. It's a, it's a passiveness. Divine passive. Yeah. Yeah, right. So now we get to the larger story. Exactly. So um, early Christians would go to these remote territories very well under the, the presumption that they will not be coming back alive. Exactly. However, do they know that for sure? No. Um, and so the grander story would be this call of discipleship, which we talked a little bit earlier. Well, this would have been two weeks ago, I think now, um, where uh, um, they shall inherit the earth. Um, that's right. Well, you won't. Yeah, you don't know if you will be killed or not. Actually, they say they will. Now, you're, you're speaking in reference to not so being a soldier, right? Are you talking about being a soldier, or are you talking about like being an average Joe, being a Christian? Okay, good. Yeah, right. Yeah, so the other, other aspect, too, though, is the... Um, uh, number five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We talked about how how does Christ inherit the earth? And that's precisely in the call of discipleship about making disciples of all nations. So there is then the, so yeah, this is a live question. This was a question back in the old days. Well, what do we do if we know we are going to go to, usually it was, usually back then it was like Germany and Northern Europe where they were worshiping trees. And if you came and spoke about another God, you'd get your head chopped off. Um, who was uh, well? Who was Luther's great missionary? Do we know? I, it's a great story. Well, there was a couple of them, but what's that? No, 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 no. Like uh, Luther had a like he had a, like really like uh, well he had a f- several favorite saints, but the guy who was the missionary to Germany. Wait, no, Kristen, do you know? Well, it, um, no, no. Well, let's, let's talk about St. Patrick then. Everybody knows the story of St. Patrick, mm-hmm. right? Does it? Well, first of all, maybe we we don't know, but um, he went to Ireland, right? There's this great story where they were wor- they were tree- there were druids and worshiping nature and trees, and he went and and uh, knocked, uh, cut down a tree or uh, he set it on fire. He set it on fire. Um, you know, he conquered a god, right? And then the king or whatever, the chieftain at that time, he took him and was going to execute him. But he's like, wait, wait, let me tell you about this god who just defeated your god. Now, as uh, St. Patrick goes into this this, uh, scenario, you have St. Patrick's breastplate or this prayer, Christ before me, Christ after me. Uh, maybe you haven't heard that. It's, a, it's in the back of your pew Bible. Um, 
And I, I believe we might be singing that this Sunday. So pay attention to that. It's also, yeah. Yes, right, the clover. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's actually the, usually the first part of, I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity. Yeah. That's all part of uh, St. Patrick's prayer. So, Lindsay, you're asking for a hard answer, and I can't give you one. Because I, it, it, it's a scenario where God's calling might put you in that place. Jesus never avoided Jerusalem. You know, he, he, he knew his, his hour had come, and his, this is what God had called him to do. But at the same time, he never, like, it, it came at the time. So there might be a time in your life where you have to go to Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran. It's very daunting. This is why this is good to talk about it, because uh, not as a soldier, but I mean as a missionary, Sudan, I mean you name all the Muslims areas where they're not going to like be happy to see you. It could be America too, I mean who knows. That's right, now, exactly, so, uh, and boy, I mean again, these are whole Bible studies, because we could do a compare and contrast between Jesus and uh, usually it's the, the, the religious leaders. For fear of the Jews, they didn't do this. Or the fear of the people, they didn't do this. So Jesus talks about, um, you know, you're, you're scared of those who will kill your body. You should really be afraid of those who can kill the soul. So Jesus knows he has this higher calling. And there's an appointed time for him to kind of kick it in. But not before that. So he, yeah, they're about to season to make him king. It's actually both ways. Not only were they going to kill him at times, and he, he slips through the crowd. There's other times where he's, they're going to make him king, and he slips through the crowd. Yeah, right. So Luther left Germany for a while, too. You, know, you name it. I mean, Augustine did it. Uh, um, uh, Cyprian did it. And Car- I mean, so there's a, uh, yeah, there's a long track record. Okay, oh, so righteousness, real quick. The word righteousness, again, is something that God gives us, but there's also the sense of doing justice, too. So, I mean, the world might persecute you for, like, healing the sick and feeding the poor and doing things that rub up against the world. And actually, we're going to, I'm going to show you a little video about that in a second here. So the last beatitude, things completely change. Blessed are you. So now we are all the, it's all been kind of, who are these people? Who is Jesus talking about? We've already said he's first primarily talking about himself as the as a son of God, as the Christ. But now he says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So he makes it abundantly clear, hey, this is about me, but it will fall upon you too. And then he says something very strange, rejoice and be glad. 
For your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so faithfulness always follows Jesus into persecution. Goes to Lindsay's question. And uh, Bailey, I, I like this quote from Bailey. This was very helpful. This is the one time I quote him in this. Um, With the conversion of Emperor Constantine to the Christian faith, the age of martyrs officially ended. But the 20th century saw far more Christians die for their faith than was known in the early centuries. Crazy, right? It's true. Armenia, Russia, China, southern Sudan, I mean, he could have listed a lot more. Millions in the modern age have died for their loyalty to Jesus Christ. This final beatitude with its expansion still speaks powerfully to the global church. Um, again, uh, persecuted, reviled, for, for exactly what now, though? I mean, that's the thing, is that... Um, so, so, go back to the beginning. For being poor in spirit, for mourning, for being meek, for uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for being merciful, for being pure in heart, and for being a peacemaker. This is what... Did I, yeah, okay. So this is what's going to happen when you sign up to follow Jesus. Krista. Uh, that's exactly right. In fact, I think I'm just going to go ahead and I have a little video here, which I hope is... I cannot find my mouse here. There we go. Um... I know Mary's seen this, probably surely. I, I hopefully I didn't show this before. If I did, it's a new application. <laughs> it goes to what Krista just said. Like, this is uh, the, uh, the persecutions and the reviling has been ha- it's happened in the 20th century, but in Bailey's quotes, it's always been somewhere else. And the you know the question would be you know is it happening here in the United States and. It is, and it's not, and if it's not, then why? And uh, so Stanley Howarth, he's a, he's a professor at Duke University. He's a, he's a uh, Christian uh, professor uh, who deals with ethics. So this is kind of the question. All right. I, I think that puts the last beatitude, kind of brings it home a little bit. Um now, you, you might not agree with the, you know what he says, and I don't necessarily agree with everything he just said, but that fundamental point that um, being reviled, persecuted, because as Christians we will come up against the world's morality, or, or another way to say it is like the righteousness, the world's righteousness, the way of being, um, I think is pretty important. And I think he brings that home. So... Any questions about that video or anything? I think, yeah. They were. No, no, his name is Stanley Hauerwas. Yeah, a little bizarre pictures uh, in terms of the uh, drinking the oil. The notion of greed. Uh, the whole point was it's gross. You know, greed is gross, and that is a good picture of that. Anyways. Um, yeah, so, you know, his, his note, like, I don't know if you heard that question when it first started, what breaks your heart? 
which I think for me, his response to that question, it was just, it's very hard hitting for me. What breaks his heart is a generation who's willing, who, who wants something to die for or to live for, and the previous generation's unwilling to give it to him. Why would the previous generation be unwilling to give it to him? Because what would that mean? Suffering and then acknowledge of what? About themselves. Yeah. Uh, not to bring it back to the winds retreat, but vulnerability. The previous generation's unable to be vulnerable in their mistakes, in their upbringings. Yeah, it's... Um, so, I mean, for, for us to live the Beatitudes, that's what we have to get over. You know, we have to get over a few things about ourselves, fundamental things, and then we have to get over the, the notion that persecution won't happen if I just play it right. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary thing. I mean, it, it being, like you said, being a Christian is, is not, it's not easy. Um, however, of course, it's, it's the thing that sustains all of us. So, all right. Next week, I, I, can't, I, didn't, I forgot to look up the number, the chapter number, but we're going to read the Lord's Prayer. So some of you guys might have read it already. Oh, it's just the next one. Okay, great. Chapter 7? Chapter 7. All right. Okay, well, hey, um, you guys have a great weekend. We'll pray and we'll go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.